Exciting news! Registration is now free for the DIR International Conference in New York City, March 15th and 16th, 2024. The International Council on Development and Learning's primary goal has always been to bring together a diverse community of passionate individuals and aims to break down any barriers to participation. Whether you're a professional, a parent, or a self-advocate who's already active in the DIR community, or you are new to DIR, ICDL welcomes you with open arms. Here's what you can expect at the conference. Engaging and inspiring keynote presentations, including Zach Gottsagen, the Kreditch family, and Jeff Gunzel, ICDL's CEO, and the Harshaws, interactive workshops on a wide range of topics, incredible workshop presenters from around the world, networking opportunities to connect with like-minded people, presentations from professionals, parents, and self-advocates, and a closing performance by Zane Harshaw of the band Blue Spectrum, and much more. Spread the word, invite your colleagues, friends, and anyone who shares your passion for DIR. Let's make this gathering the most vibrant and inclusive yet. Visit www.icdl.com conferences for more information. You're listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome, Sabrina O'Keefe, speech therapist and DIR expert and training leader, joining us from nearby to me, Orangeville, Ontario. We will be discussing Gestalt, language processing, and I know I pronounced that right because Sabrina is German and she told me how to pronounce it. <laughs> and listeners have been requesting this podcast for so long. So thank you so much, Sabrina, for agreeing to do this podcast with me. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Now, for the listeners, just so you know, Sabrina has been my son's speech therapist off and on for a number of years. So I, I know her professionally in that way. And she is the only DIR floor time person who's ever been able to keep my son engaged on screen for any length of time and for the entire 45 minute to 50 minute session of speech therapy. So this this uh, person is an awesome floor timer. So thank you, thank Sabrina. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Gestalt language processing is sort of synonymous with scripting with delayed echolalia. And we're learning more and more about Gestalt language processing because we are privileged to hear the lived stories of, of um, autistic adults who are talking about the way that they developed and learned language. And um, this particular term, it's not new. It was first sort of thought up in the 70s, Ann Peters, followed by Barry Prezant, followed by um, Marge Blanc, were using the terms. And um, it's essentially just a way of naming how someone acquires language. And you can either be a gestalt language processor or an analytic language processor. And I have a feeling that gestalt language processing was kind of a mouthful. And so it it kind of worked better to call it scripting or delayed echolalia in kind of other circles. But now it's it's getting a comeback. So <laughs> we're using the, the full term GLP, a gestalt language processor. So scripting is pretty self-explanatory. So a child might say, like in our podcast with uh, Jahan Shahata Abubakar from a number of years ago, she talked about a child who was scripting who said, 
it's raining, it's raining. And if you didn't know anything about the child, you would just think it's senseless um, speech. But the child had marked, to use Ira Glavinsky's term, the experience of being on a field trip when it started raining and the teacher was getting everybody into the bus. So it was a little bit of a, a hurried, frantic situation. So anytime anything frantic happened, the child would yell, it's raining. And uh, as we hear from Barry Prasant, who you mentioned on the Uniquely Human podcast, he talks about all the time how we cannot dismiss scripting as meaningless speech, which has sort of was the norm when my son was diagnosed over 10 years ago. Um, and now we understand, no, scripting is meaningful. That's what Jahan talked about in our previous podcast. And but let's talk about what echolalia is, because my understanding is a child will repeat what you say. So there's two terms of echolalia. There's immediate echolalia and there's delayed echolalia. So immediate echolalia is, as it sounds, it's an immediate echo. You say something, the child says it back. Typically, when a child does communicate like that, we wonder about comprehension. Um, but if a child were to experience a frantic event, and pull a delayed echo from what they heard before and attach it to the current meaningful situation. It's raining is the delayed gestalt. It is the unit of language that was important in that moment in their life to represent that feeling. So that is a delayed echolalia. That is a delayed script. That is a gestalt that they pull out meaningfully to talk about what is happening here and now. So is it echolalia? Yes, but there are two different uh, types. I'm wondering if there's different types of scripting too then, because my son will recite lines from the Super Mario movie, and mm -hmm. he's just really just replaying it in his head, laughing to himself, using it maybe to try and connect with me. Mama! do you yield or whatever, which is what, you know, the <laughs> penguin says to Bowser and he'll yes. just repeat these lines. And that's sort of a playful kind of just rehashing his interests. And then there are other kids who will do more what we talked about the it's raining thing where um, they may not, they may be non-speaking, but mm -hmm. every now and then this script will come out from a movie and the parent, if they're attuned to that, understands yeah. that they are replaying a scene that has emotional content that's similar to what's happening in the current situation. So it is meaningful speech. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and the idea is that you pick up these units of language, these gestalts from your environment. And the current language environment for a lot of kids is media and it's media scripts. Whereas in the 70s, when this idea was first kicked around, that really wasn't the environment from which you were drawing language. You were drawing language from interactions with family, from peer play, from observing the environment. So now these media scripts are becoming more pervasive. And so Ann Peters would say that a gestalt is a unit of language. And that unit could be one word, it could be a five minute monologue. It could be something, um, you know, varying in length because the sources are different and they're so they're so different now because of the media influence. So the thing with um, the gestalt 
when it's being used meaningfully, um, it's usually a way to connect with another person, right? And we want that reaching out, that engagement, that connection. And we have to be very, very good detectives to figure out where that is coming from and what um, what emotion is part of that and what have they experienced so that this language is just so meaningful. But we want to move those kids forward from using those long, long, long media scripts or media gestalts because they're tough to carry around. They're tough to use um, and grow with as you get older. So what's really cool now, I think why Gestalt language processing is just so exciting is because therapists are now learning about how do we, and parents too, there's a huge network of parents beginning really smart on how to be the best language um, providers for kids. So there's a, um, a, it's called natural language acquisition and it is, it is Marge Blanc's baby. And it is a way of moving a child from delayed echolalia, from the use of gestalts to spontaneous language. And so it is the process now of taking that script and making it powerful and making it spontaneous. So to answer your question, yes, two different scripts, <laughs> but, and the source, it, it's the source, right? It's the, it's the day we have media. So that's where they're taking their ideas from. So it, it's a, just a bit of a different process to work through that. So I guess, um, let's, let's, um, go through, a, a fictional scenario of you getting a client. Yes. How do you assess what type of language processor there are in the first place? And then what do you do? <laughs> Great question. So when I first get a client, what I do is I put on my DIR floor time glasses and I watch and I wait and I wonder and I listen and I see what sorts of individual differences this child in front of me is presenting with. And one of those individual differences is how they're using and acquiring language. So I pay really close attention to that. I also pay really close attention to the child's parents who would often say things like, yeah, they just, they love nursery rhymes and they love the intonation patterns of songs. And it just sounds like they're jabbering away to themselves. And, and, uh, and we know that if kids are Gestalt language processors, they are intonation babies. So they are drawn to the rhythmic nature of language. And so it sounds like they're having a conversation, but when you're little, you don't have great articulation and you don't really understand word boundaries. So you try your best to copy what you hear, but you don't necessarily get it all, right? So it's those little bits of history that you listen into and and you see kind of what he's what the child's responding to and and you know what sorts of models light him light that child up in my first in my first meetings and and those that bit of history is what really kind of guides a little bit um, whether I decide that they're a Gestalt language processor or an analytic language processor or a little bit of both. So an analytic language processor, if you want me to explain, is kind of your typical language development where they would start referencing. So we start, you know, the point and mummy, <laughs> mummy, 
and then we would grow mummy sock and then we would grow again mummy sock me so that sentence would keep on growing and keep on growing whereas the gestalt language processor is probably not going to be using single words in a referencing kind of way they will be using more intonation patterns or some longer um gestalts that can be socially socially fantastic i mean we use them all the time hey how's it going how are you it's a great chunk of language that we can that we can use um so that's where i would be so paying attention playing 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 and listening, listening, listening to, to both the child and the family. Now, this might be a separate podcast, but how do we differentiate non-speakers from early speakers and mm -hmm. the non-speakers who might become verbal and use scripts and the non-speakers who are using other forms of communication, whether it's AAC devices or something else? Maybe that's a separate podcast. I don't know. It, yeah, it, it might be because I don't know enough about that. However, there is a, a big movement about providing um, Gestalt language processors with appropriate messaging on their devices, something that's going to make more sense to them. So more of those, um, the phrases that, you know, we can talk about in a bit about what exactly it looks like, um, rather than combining words on their device to form a sentence they're getting a larger amount of language to, to dig into, which matches their, um, that matches their learning profile. Sometimes it's a matter of, wow, we've been doing this a long time and it's not working. Let's try something different. Um, and so we, we go in the other way, or there's always clues. There's always clues about how the child is interacting at home. If they're drawn to melody, if you hear a little bit of that humming and you think, okay, maybe this is the way that my child is acquiring language and is processing language. So it's uh, it's worth paying attention to, it's worth wondering about um, for sure. And it is definitely probably another podcast about how the people who are actually programming these um, devices or, or putting together um, communication books and boards for kids who are gestalt language processors, what sorts of information they're, they're using to gather. But it is fascinating. It's a, it's a growing uh, interest in the area too, for sure. Yeah, and as you mentioned, just hearing all of the self-advocates who talk about the way that they process language, it's just informing the field so mm -hmm. much. And we're we're seeing more autistic speech therapists and people that are more in tune with what they experienced growing up and, and helping others, which is which is an interesting, um, a very important development in the field Absolutely. that has changed things a lot. Um, so from what you said, my son's definitely an analytical language processor because he started okay. with the um, go nanny's house. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and, and single words at first, you know, mama was his first word. <laughs> nice. Um, but that was before his brain inflammation. And after his brain inflammation, he lost all his speech and language. And mm. it started the same way, like single words and then adding and, you know, that that typical language development. And so I'm familiar with the stages because I watched my son go through it, but what would the stages in a Gestalt language child look like? Or I don't know if that's yeah, the right way. Yeah, Gestalt to... language processor. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. Interesting. So when you have your analytic language processor and you're starting with your single word and then you're pairing two together and then you're growing, 
in the scheme of natural language acquisition, that is starting at stage three. So that idea of single words and combining words starts at stage three of a Gestalt language processor's natural language acquisition, which means that the GLP has two stages before that. So the first stage is the use of the Gestalts. So for example, I have, I, I thought of a couple of examples. So one little guy I worked with, um, he would frantically, you know, touch his mom and he would say, mama called the doctor and the doctor said, mama called the doctor and the doctor said, and that was his gestalt had nothing to do with wanting to jump on the bed, did not want the monkey song. What he wanted was his mom's phone. So that was his gestalt for wanting to get his mom's phone. Okay. So that's his stage one gestalt. The problem is it's pretty long and we really kind of need to break that down. So in stage one, we want to start to give kids gestalts, phrases that are easily breakdownable. And the fancy word is mitigable. We want mitigable gestalts. If we want to make it even you know, harder to say, we want to break these things down. So if he's saying, mama called the doctor and the doctor said, and I know that he's wanting his phone, I might say something like, let's find it. Let's look, where'd it go? You know, that type of phrasing that can then be broken down because then in stage two, I can take those phrases and I can mix and match them. So let's find it becomes, let's buy it. Let's play with it. You know, you find it. So you're taking bits and pieces of these breakdownable gestalts and you're getting more flexible until you can get down to the stage three or up to stage three where each word is meaningful. Let's can stand on its own, find can stand on its own, and it can stand on its own. And that's where you start to kind of bridge the gap or see the similarity between the analytic processor and the GLP. So they're both now ready to reference the mommy and the sock <laughs> in their environment. Um, and so it's it's pretty cool to see that. And and one thing I wouldn't mind talking about is, is the idea that we have kids who are Gestalt language processors who are amazing at single words or who are amazing at saying, I want. And the tricky part of that is that they're considered stuck. These are, this is rote language that has been taught and they're stuck single words. So they have a bevy of single words that they can't do anything with. They can't build, they can want something, but I want doesn't break down to anything else. And so when we see those kids with those stuck single words and those stuck language patterns, we have to go back down to those stage ones and those stage twos to give them some vocabulary to fill up their language banks 
so that they can then mix and match and truly understand how I can combine that single word with later grammar to become spontaneous in my language. So it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And I imagine um, because of individual differences and everything, no two children are alike, but there's sort of these general trends that you've mentioned, like they, they chunk a number of words together from a script, they mm -hmm. mark it with an emotional meaning, uh, they connect it to something that happened, which we have to be the detective figure out what it is. <laughs> Right. And then, as you said, breaking, um, giving them more vocabulary that is more like building blocks that they can mix and match to form meaningful language. Um, again, how do you word that? Because their script is meaningful language, too. Absolutely. So to form, um, I don't know, um, ways more to flexible. say things more flexible and yeah. more op options from which to choose from to be able to communicate what they want to communicate. Exactly. So it's increasing the flexibility. It's increasing the ability to use different type of language across environments and with different people to be understood. Um, so it serves them well, but we want to be able to grow because we always want to expand and be able to interact and engage with more people and more um, in environments, do a lot of these kids continue to use gestalts as an adult? Sure, absolutely. But as they get older, and if they've gone through those stages, then they're going to start to look a little bit more analytical. And so, it's a uh, it, it can serve them well. It's not a it's and it's not a hundred percent like you're either a GLP or an ALP, there's gonna be little bits of both. And the same thing too, if you are a stage two language user, you're not 100% stage two. You're gonna have some stage ones, you're gonna have some um, like available single words, you're gonna have a little bit of spontaneous grammar in your phrases. You're gonna be across that, that hierarchy. Um, so you're not going to be solely in, but you're going to be primarily in a stage. And that's how we know, okay, are, do you have enough stuff in here? Like, are you, are you doing really well in this stage? Okay. You've got enough stuff. Now I'm going to start to model. And that's the key. I'm going to start to model the next stage to, to continue to have you grow. And that's, what's kind of really cool is that it's all about the partner. And it's all about the input that we're giving with our language. There is no, you know, demand for the child to repeat. It is just a matter of, I am now giving you the next type of language for your vocabulary brain to start to organize and use so that when it's appropriate, you can use that language powerfully and spontaneously in environments that make sense. So it's just just amazing. Now, this is important because um, <clears throat> if if you have a family who doesn't understand or schools, teachers, people around mm -hmm. the child who doesn't don't understand what they are doing when they're scripting and are, you know, more training um, speech and rote kinds of things and um, the child maybe is is stuck because 
they've sort of regurgitating memorized rote things and may or may not be matching it to the meaning. And then they're also using scripts. I imagine going forward, it's going to be a lot harder. Whereas when you have this understanding um, among the family and speech therapist, and you're providing all of this, like you said, modeling the language mm -hmm. that will help them build their vocabulary and be able to use language flexibly as they get older, they're able to communicate a lot more. And that's where, you know, not dissimilar from DIR, we have all the, the our functional emotional developmental capacities that build and we're not necessarily in one or the other we're jumping around, but gotcha. you might primarily be in in one area um, as you continue to progress and then as you get older. Um, you have that flexibility to go back and forth um, so not that dissimilar but um, I imagine that it it's so important that this is getting out now because um once the kids like when the children are younger the onus mm -hmm. is more on us and if we want to get that independence you really have to foster that foundation earlier on so that you can mm -hmm. then have them bounce and <laughs> and be able to flourish um and and think about how many people just always use movie scripts to get the message across like we're all scripting as adults yeah but we have the flexibility of describing what we're doing or why um i think about um in my family um my older brother and i always um will just immediately think of songs so mm -hmm. if we're going through something we'll just break out into an 80s or 70s song that has lyrics that match whatever situation we're in uh, our brain just goes there so i don't yeah. think that's that different either um oh. but I, I i i'd love to hear more about the the whole process and the modeling and what you're doing in the therapy sessions um, as the child progresses yeah so and it's and it's like you say right in a dir world in a floor time world you want to be providing the right input to match the the individual difference of the child right you are going to be most regulated when you are moving. You are going to be most regulated, engaged when you are in a swing. So we're always looking for those um, inputs that we can provide as a co-regulator to be able to extend the interaction. So our input as a language user should be such that it extends the interaction, right? So if I'm working with a child and and they are are coming in with some some gestalts and it could be a complete monologue from you know Encanto or whatever you know and and you and you dial it down, you think to yourself, okay, is this going to serve you? Just like that little girl who's saying it's raining. If she's frantic, it's raining might not work when she says that to somebody else. But if she says it's raining and then starts to mitigate and learn things like I'm scared or that's loud, that's language that she can then take to describe to other people. So if we've got kiddos who are kind of using those media scripts primarily and um, I think, okay, I gotta, I gotta start to give you something juicy. You need to be able to, to have something. We're looking for phrases that are fairly neutral 
and fairly flexible. So things that start with uh, we or let's, we did it, let's go, let's find it. Those are great go-tos. There's also um, language that talks about a transition. So um, how about we do this? How about we go here? How about, so that how about is a nice thing. Same with it's time. It's time to go. It's time for bath. It's time, you know, here we go. Um, also talking as a child. So using a lot of I'm, you know, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm so tired. So using those I'm, um, using, I love the word another because I find more is just, uh, I'm not a huge fan of more. I find it very limiting because if a child just goes around asking for more, it's the same thing as I want, you know, it's not taking you anywhere. So it's, it's things like another, another one, another turn, another push, another cookie, you know, it's, it's a great way of having more neutral, flexible language. So another, how about it's time to, um, we let it's and that's oh, it's so fast. It's great. It's amazing. It's a car. So you're using those types of contractions. So not it is a car. Why not? Because that's grammar. We don't learn that till later. We pick up intonation patterns. So it's that's are the things that we're modeling. I'm gonna go, not I am going to go, because then you have a three-year-old talking like a professor, right? I'm gonna go, wanna play, watch me. Those types of phrases are ones that a Gestalt language processor can grab onto and use them flexibly with their play. And they describe what their longer Gestalt might be meaning. So I use a lot of those and it's all about what is this child interested in? I see you're interested in doing this. I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to wait, watch and wonder and see what you're doing and how you're playing. And I'm going to use comments that are going to support our interaction in this activity. Um, so it's, it's all about attunement and providing good models in a, in a, activity or in an interaction where the child is engaged in reciprocal um, communication and in a position to be able to learn. And so you've set those kids up for success. You're providing um, the right type of language models that they can then mix and match later. And so it looks like a big fun play session is what my therapy looks like. I mean, my therapy looks like a big fun play session anyways, but it's very mindful. I have to know what phrases I'm saying. I have to know what language I'm using and it has to match um, the child's agenda so that I can join and be, um, be welcome in their interaction with my language. Yes. And I will, I will say that in, 2021 uh so yeah three years ago sabrina and i presented at the new york city icdl uh rebecca school conference showing one of her speech sessions with my son and it was super playful and that that is what makes it fun for kids 
But mm. I'm thinking of a couple of questions that I know parents ask often in ICDL's parent support meeting that I facilitate. Um, one, I think you already answered. And then the, so yeah, I'm okay. I'll just spit them out and then I'll go one by one before I forget what they are. How long am I going to be modeling? Let's do this. Let's do that before I hear the child actually start using it. And secondly, and I know that'll be dependent on the child. And secondly, um, parents who say, well, my child is using improper pronouns. Now you already said grammar comes later. But when you say, I'm, I'm thirsty, or I'm hungry, or let's do this, or, or whatever, if you're saying we and I'm, and then the child um, d like says we instead of you, or whatever, you're not worried about that. Not yet. I am not worried. <laughs> I am worried about the child who comes up to me and says, do you want a snack? When they're actually saying, could I have something to eat? <laughs> you know, so because they've so memorized, they are, they've memorized that because someone taught them the proper way to say it. Someone has modeled it for them. And because I pick up language from my environment in a giant sentence and that particular gestalt of do you want a snack is resulting in me getting fed, then I'm going to use that. But the use, like, especially with two people, the you and the I and the correct just it's not worth it. So it's those ideas of keeping it neutral with the we and the let's speaking as the child, I'm so hungry, you know, you can you can navigate your way much better. Um, that way, for sure. Yeah, so we're not going to, you know, two and three year olds should not be asking questions in reverse order, like we should not have word order reversal when we're very, very young. That is also a sign that I have picked up language or wrote language from my environment because they don't say they don't speak like that they don't say may I please go outside uh, or may you may you take me to the park or whatever the the ridiculous type of sentence might be um and then as far as how long does it take it takes well, as long well, as it takes so yeah. so let me let me uh, just go back and say so parents if your child is saying we instead of you or I instead of he or she instead if they're mixing up their pronouns don't worry about that. The the yeah. until later because that comes later. That's a much later stage. Yeah, we is great. And if kids are mixing up their eyes and U's because they're trying to remember what their parent asked them, do you want a snack, Jimmy? And then he's like, I don't know how to answer with I, so I'll just repeat back. Do you want a snack, Jimmy? That is a sign that those you and I pronouns, we're not ready to figure out where they are. So let's just get a snack. Right. right. You know? And then it's, and then it's joined. And, you know, how long are we going to be at one stage? Kind of as long as it takes. Um, the goal is 50%. So I'm always taking language samples and parents can take language samples too. So it's writing down what the child says spontaneously. So not repeating you in your play interaction, but what you listen for spontaneously. And then I, um, I grade or I rate what stage each utterance is at. And so when you are spontaneously using 50% 
of a stage. So my child is speaking and 50% of the time they're using stage two gestalts. That tells me that we were going to be ready to move on to the next stage. And I'm going to change my, my language input. So again, it's not 100%, but sometimes that's the stage that people are at for a significant period of time. Sometimes it's minutes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, and that's what happens a lot of the times with um, some kids is that you don't notice that they're actually a Gestalt language processor because they just went through the phase in approximately, you know, three and a half minutes and all of a sudden they're analytic, right? Um, so it really does depend depend on the child and, and to be there for as long as uh, they need the support within that stage. Now, we haven't really spoken about age of child. Are just gis... <laughs> Gestalt. It's, a, it's, a, it's like g-e-s-h gestalt, gestalt. <laughs> yeah. processors language processors are they always autistic kids can neurotypical kids be gestalt absolutely. language processors how does that work absolutely so there's the the line that says most autistics are gestalt language processors but most but Gestalt language processors don't have to be autistic is kind of right. how it goes. So, I mean, it's, there's no harm in trying if you're working with an autistic little one and there's, there's no harm in, in wondering about, even if they're non-speaking at that time, wondering about whether or not this is the way they might be um, acquiring language, I might start to use those mitigable phrases with the child, um, as well as some nursery rhymes and some songs, and just to see if that lights them up, because um, there's a chance that they could be learning language in this way and processing language in this way. So there's no harm in doing it. Um, yeah. And then what age categories do you tend to see? Because a lot of autistic kids have quote unquote delayed onset when we're comparing them with neurotypicals, but that's typical for autistic children to mm -hmm. um, speak later. So what are the age groups that maybe you might start to hear, like maybe the parents will say they didn't speak at all, then at age whatever, they started doing phrases and then at age whatever, like is there sort of a, a developmental timeline for autistic who are? Are GLPs. I wish there was. Um, so in my practice, what's currently sort of happening is that I'm getting a host of four and five-year-olds who have either been in, in ABA for a few years or have had other types of intervention. And, and then the parents are starting to get on Instagram and they start to wonder. And so I'm getting this, this group of, of four and five-year-olds whose parents are now wondering if this is in fact how my child is learning and processing language because when they were much younger, they were singing, they were talking to themselves like they're having a huge conversation. And, and kids do, babies do, up till 18 months, you hear that, you know, you hear that jargon babble strings and, and we're just experimenting with the flow of sounds and how that feels and, and sounds to us and what sort of interaction and, and um, 
interaction that that uh, that affords, right? So there is that playfulness. I wish you could say you're going to know by 18 months if it's a GLP or an LP, but I I don't. Um, I do know that you know the longer you are using your current language system, maybe it's longer to change to something new because you already have some patterns, or maybe it's really fast because finally someone is giving me something that I can work with. Um, so it's it's tricky to say. It, again, it's lots of observations. The parents are are knowing how their child is attuned to music, attuned to language, attuned to tone, the types of words and such they're hearing. So they may start to have some ideas because now there is more information about it out there. Um, so I may start to see younger and younger children, but as of right now, it is those kids that have wondering parents about, um, hey, <laughs> could this be it? So that's where I'm now. And, and then you will have um, children as they age and you may have teens or adults who are now a little bit more analytic, but may still rely on those, on those gestalts or maybe still, you know, living in those stage two or stage one gestalts as their primary way of processing and using language. So it's, it's tough to say that there's an actual developmental timeline. We do, once we get to grammar in the natural language acquisition, we do look at those developmental norms of what, what grammar structures happen and in what order. And that's what we start to present. But it's less about age and more about readiness within the stage. And meeting things developmentally, going in a developmentally appropriate path. So I, I think that's an important um, point that you made, not just for speech therapy, but in general, that development in general tends to happen in a in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to happen at the exact age groups that the neurotypical norms say, but but even though um, autistic and neurodivergent development might be atypical, it does tend to follow the same stages and patterns of neurotypical development. It just might look different. The path might be a little bit uh, varied, but those um, building blocks maybe are still similar. Um, yeah. and, and like you, you just mentioned that in terms of grammar. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to, and I'm, I, cause I know the way that grammar develops typically. Right. And so if I have a child who is now using single words and noun and adjective combinations, I do, I know based on the research and the history, what types of grammar forms come in what developmental order. So I'm, I'm going to, to introduce it that way. Is it, you know, oh, I'm not going to say, okay, well now we're at stage three but the child is seven. So I need to do seven-year-old grammar um, norms as my goals. No, no, no. I go where we are next in that development. Same thing for play. You know, I'm not going to say, okay, well, you're seven. You should be symbolic in your play. No, no, no. If we're not at FEDC four to five to six, we're, we're not going to play that way. We're going to build up developmentally with 
what with what makes sense for that child's development um, to keep them thinking and wondering and wanting to stay engaged with us um, and trusting us that we're going to support them in, in their own path. Right? And, and I mean, I've seen examples where children who might be quote unquote delayed in terms of comparison to neurotypical development mm-hmm. um, could be, you know, um, delayed, again, delayed, I'm using that in quotes for those listening in yep. audio, because that's the way um, people have used it. Now we know that we don't want to say they're delayed because it's just different types of development, but I'll see sometimes those children for years, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's this huge developmental leap, and they're right on target with age group. In other cases, mm-hmm. it might not be the case. Um, it might be a slower path. I know my son has had a much slower developmental trajectory than a lot of kids. Uh, mm-hmm. He did. He had brain inflammation when he was two, um, but it's it's just so varied depending on the child. So um, I, I appreciate that you say you're following where the child is and helping give that you know that just right challenge or whatever mm-hmm. to get them to the next the next um, uh, stage or whatever it is that you're working on next. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, and you, and you have to always, you know, walk alongside um, who you're, who you're supporting and go at their pace and then find that edge where you can, you can, you know, bring them along to something new and, and interesting that might get them thinking and, and wondering even more. It's really interesting. And, and you mentioned difference, right? And that's the big thing is that um, a Gestalt language processor is not a delayed language user. They are a different language user. And so it is a developmental difference in the way that they're acquiring language. It is not a developmental disorder or delay. And that's something that's really being um, Kind of at the forefront of of those who are teaching this model and using this model that you know they're they're just on a different path and it's okay and we're not delayed <laughs> we're just doing things differently so and and that's the message that i think is harder to get out there and it is getting out there more and more the more self-advocate voices we have um i think sabrina and i both consider ourselves neurodivergent we both have neurodivergent children we're appreciative Mm -hmm. of this um this type of narrative where all kids are looked at as being their own unique individuals and not compared to any timeline or held accountable but parents still coming in are still there. They still want their children to speak. I want my child to this. I want my child to that. Um, Do you find that, I mean, this kind of seems to me like not not the best question because it should be obvious, but do you find (laughs) that the parents that are on board and really jump on board and start to model this stuff, do you see that the children progress a lot faster or whatever um, than parents who maybe are stuck on their ideas of the way things should be? Yes, they do. And it's a, it is a tough sell. I mean, there are so many 
you know, what to expect when you're expecting and what to expect in the first year. And, you know, I had the charts on my fridge and even though my child didn't have head control, she was four months old and therefore we are sitting and eating solids, you know? So there's, there's that, it's that external press. Like it's that press to have your child grow up like kids are supposed to do. And at three months, you're supposed to do this. And at four months, you're supposed to do this. And look, I've got this chart. And I'm going to follow this chart. And those charts have been so prevalent for so many years that I think it's just, you know, it's it's like societal bias. Like this is what you're supposed to do. And when you have concerns, you go to your doctor. And what does your doctor do? Pulls out the same chart, <laughs> you know? So it's it's a tricky sell to shift from that and to really embrace that this is a different path. And when you have parents who are in it, there is an amazing uh, thing that happens to just be in the moment. I had one mom say to me, and she stopped as her son was lying in my lap. And, and she said to me, it's all about the engagement and regulation, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, yes, it is. Yes. Because unless we're engaged and relating and, and regulated, we don't have the capacity to, to, to listen and hear and be part and, and hear those models, right? We got to be here. And it was interesting because she, she was sat there and she went, this is it. Light bulb moment. <laughs> Light bulb moment. She saw it. She just felt it. And it's, it's really amazing to be able to be a part of that. It's a real privilege for me to work, to do the work that I do and to be a part of, of a family's journey. I don't take this for granted. You know, I've been doing this for 22 years and, you know, I'm very fortunate to be um, part of these lives for families for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't take that lightly. So important to see when when families feel that same excitement that I do yeah and and I think that's really um something that is tricky because we know that all parents love their kids and are trying their well we hope most 99.9999% <laughs> there's maybe yeah. a few deviants but in general parents love their children they want to help them they're doing what they think is best and um to bring them on board an approach that they're uncomfortable with, I think probably is the majority of the challenge that you might have with some clients. And I think um, by, I mean, what's the best way that you sort of get them to see that light bulb moment that that mother had? <laughs> um, well, I, I usually, first of all, I don't pull out a norm chart. It's, it's what I do when I have a first, when I have my first meeting. Um, I speak about how excited I am to see them, that I love playing with their kid. I'm like, and I make lots of comments like, oh my goodness, what a great idea. Oh, he really likes to push those cars. And, and then she might say, or, he, or the dad might say, yeah, he likes to, this is what happened the other day. He likes to assess the integrity of the wheels. And so you start to form relationship as humans and that's shifted in my career because you have to have a balance, right? You, you therapist and client 
you are not necessarily on an even playing field. Like the therapist kind of has the upper hand within that relationship, right? And if you can get it here as quickly as possible that you're on the journey together and they recognize that you are a safe person who loves their child and is so excited when they come in and all the things that you're picking out. So it helps because you start to feel more relaxed, right? So if I, I know something's wrong, I know something's not according to that chart. That's why I've called you and I've come to bring my child so you can fix them. So I'm already freaking out as a parent and I show up and I'm waiting for you to tell me just how behind my kid is, but instead you're going to come to an environment where it's okay. And it's okay to feel the feelings you have and it's okay to, to play with the same dinosaur for the whole time because that dinosaur is so great and so parents know when when you meet another adult who gets your kid and it's a weight I think that is off a lot of shoulders that oh okay yeah I'm not going to be judged I'm not going to be told that I should have or should be doing something. And so it's it's something that I really pride myself in doing. I mean, I'm not for everybody. I'm very big. I'm very bold. If you're doing something that, you know, I'd like you to do differently, it's, I'm quite in there. So, but I think my passion and my enthusiasm is what makes families feel safe, that I have the best interest of them and their child. So that's the, the long, the yeah. long answer. No, Mike Fields talked about that when his child was first diagnosed. Mike Fields, who I've done podcasts with, he's a DIR expert trainer in Atlanta, a licensed professional counselor. And he talked about how when he got floor time, it was like, oh, they're not telling me all the bad stuff. <laughs> and that's what really made him relax as a parent. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is when parents see how much fun their child is having and they're excited to meet with Miss Sabrina. Uh, as opposed to going to that other place where they're drained and they don't want to go and they're protesting. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, my son is super excited every time he has speech with Miss Sabrina. He, he's excited. Mm -hmm. He talks about all the things that we're going to do. And Sabrina has the cool green screen and she puts up, you know, the interests that uh, my son is interested in. And, and so I think that also helps maybe parents to see like, oh, okay, like you said, they get my child and then you start to see some progress. So Thank you so much, Sabrina. Is there anything else we didn't cover that you wanted oh, to mention? <laughs> we covered so much. I mean, I'm so glad. So Marge Blanc, who is the natural language acquisition GLP kind of I don't know, queen, I don't know. She speaks so much about how NLA and DIR are such good friends. And so as a speech therapist, to have a social emotional model match my language model, it's just so empowering. And so, you know, I really encourage families to get curious about their child and about the language and, and thinking about maybe there's something different that we could be doing um, and to explore um, with their therapist or find a therapist or, you know, just get curious. That's my, oh, and, and take very good notes about where, the, what movies those scripts are coming from. So that, yes. <laughs> so that you can really, 
really tap into that. So that's the best. Be great detectives. <laughs> so thank you so much, Sabrina, for uh, finally we got this podcast done. I know I've been bugging you for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful that um, for your perseverance. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I love DIR. I love floor time. And I'm really starting to love uh, Gestalt language processing and natural language acquisition. And, and I knew that they went together. I knew that DIR floor time and GLP or, or natural language acquisition, I knew they went together, but I wasn't able to figure out how I could conceptualize them together. And I tried to do things like, okay, well, these are the language models that would work best at FEDC3, or, you know, we would um, do this type of thing once, you know, something else has been established. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where to put it um, within the model. And so I really struggled with that and, and how to conceptualize it. And once, you know, the light bulb went off and I realized that, hey, this is an individual difference, then I could start to fit it into my model and how I support from FEDC1, how I can then support um, the child in front of me, knowing that this is the individual difference that that is uh, being presented and I can I can support that way. So that was a big aha moment. And so now once I realized I I didn't have to jam that square peg in that round hole and I could instead, you know, uh, wrap it up in a beautiful DIR floor time model, then I can now speak with confidence and passion about about Gestalt language processing. So thank you for bearing with me. Well, wonderful. I'm really glad you added that because I think any practitioners listening, if they've been having similar conceptual struggles, that'll, that'll make sense to them. And mm -hmm. so uh, thank you for that. And listeners, you can go to the blog post um, at affectautism.com under Gestalt Language Processing to find more information and links to things that Sabrina mentioned. So thanks so much, Sabrina. Thank you. The 2024 International DIR Conference is coming up March 15th and 16th in New York City, and registration is now free. The conference theme is Connect, Engage, Develop, and Learn with DIR. I can't wait to see the keynote presentations. Zach Gottsagen was the first child with Down syndrome to be included in the Palm Beach County School District. And after the ADA was passed, Zach filed one of the first ADA suits, which successfully challenged the Little League to include children with disabilities, resulting in all coaches being required to receive training in inclusion. The Kredich family will be presenting the magical story of the life of their son, Ben Kredich, who was tragically killed last summer. His parents and his twin brother and younger brother will be sharing their reflections of his life and how floor time helped shape who he became. I will be talking about ICDL's parent support meetings and how you can support parents with the concerns that they have. And there will be other presentations from Dr. Ira Glavinsky, Dr. Kathy Platzman, occupational therapist Maud LaRue, and so many more, including Dave Nelson, supporting critical thinking for adolescents and adults using current events, controversial topics, and a DIR attitude. Many presentations from staff at the Rebecca School, the DIR floor time school in Manhattan. It's not to be missed. Registration is now free. I hope to see you there. Check out icdl.com slash conferences for more information. 
Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.